Welcome back to the King's Table. This is episode number 14. I am your moderator host, Ashish Nathu. I'm joined by my good friends, Mike Ayala and Aaron Amuchastegui. Maddie didn't show up. He's at Disneyland with his girls. Priorities. Priorities. The dude put his, his kids in Disneyland before us. I know if it was Mike, he'd be in the corner of It's a Small World line on the pod. <laughs> He'd be on the boat. We have a lot of things to talk about today. The The world is a fun place. There's lots of things going on. But before we get into that, I think we maybe start talking about what we're thinking about doing with the podcast. This has been super fun. We're on our 14th episode. We're enjoying it. We're learning a lot. I think the engagement with the audience has been fantastic. So we're we're putting together a plan to make this its own home. Mooch, you want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah. The, you know, and for everybody listening today, you're listening to it on my podcast, the Real Estate Rockstars yes. podcast. But our goal of the last few weeks was to remind everybody that this is one big fun thing we're doing together, but that each of us actually has our own specialty and our own podcast. And I believe that anyone listening to the kid, King's Table should actually be listening to all four of us. So the thing we did the last few weeks was kind of spread it around the other podcasts. And I hope all of my listeners have gone and subscribed to the Millionaire Mindcast and, you know, to the Rich Equation, Investing for Freedom. Like, I hope you guys have gone and I hope you guys that from that came from there have come in and subscribed to the Real Estate Rockstars because we talk about all sorts of stuff, as you've seen by our style and by the things that are important for us and our answers. We are four very different guys. But the magic that we have has become uh, the King's Table. It's been some of the most fun conversations and I look forward to it every week. It's one of the few things that I have that doesn't feel like a job, but that could be like a job. And so anyway, I'm grateful to be here. We thought, hey, it has to be its own spot. It has to be its own thing. You know, what I learned with the Real Estate Rockstars podcast, which is huge, right? We get hundreds of thousands of downloads every month, right? Pretty incredible, pretty grateful. It's amazing how many of you guys are out there but it was funny. I remember when I first had a talk with somebody and they said, cool, how do I subscribe to your podcast right now? And there's like, okay, you can click this link. And then there's either Google or iPhone or Stitch or like, there's like 15 different podcast subscription services. There's also one that like goes in my Tesla, like Spotify. And then there's like, and then there's YouTube and you're trying to grow them. And I think I had two different goals of where I think we should go to. So this was my recommendation and I'd like to hear from you guys on it. Um, I think we should just push everything to YouTube. And part of the reason I think we should push it all to YouTube is one, we are talking about topics that deserve discussion. It deserves the ability for our listeners to enhance the conversation, make the conversation better, hear something and say, hey guys, but did you think about this? Because right now it's a very like one way. We announce it on the pod. Some people are sending us texts and messages and comments and giving us feedback. But YouTube is the only way we could distribute this where someone could actually give us feedback and someone else could add to that feedback and someone else could say, oh, good point, where we could actually enhance the conversation. So YouTube is a spot where you can enhance the conversation because all of you listeners can actually comment and chat and we can interactively chat with you and each other because we are trying to create a movement. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to do um, something where a lot of you guys know who each other are. You get to start chatting with each other and you get to start doing it together. So that's been my vote on YouTube. And I think it's also very simple uh, to say, this is where we are. You know, I listen to the All In podcast. It's one of my favorite pods. Some of the inspiration uh, where when you guys had come up with this idea and so gracefully um, invited me to join you. 
the all in pods, one of my favorite things to watch. But even when I'm, if I'm on my computer, I'm watching it on YouTube. If I'm in my car, now mind you, my car self drives, so I can be a little distractive. I watch it on YouTube, yeah. right? Like the, um, I, I have my phone up and I'm watching the screen. I love to see the interactions. They don't yeah. put a ton of graphs out there, but sometimes, and I think we're going to do that too. Um, but it just feels different. So my vote is we move everything to YouTube, but this is probably going to be, you know, the last one that we publish on our pods. And, um, and I'm also planning, you know, to do kind of weekly reminders to all my rockstar listeners to tell you guys where to go find it in case you guys aren't listening to it today. So every week, you know, they're going to hear a little 30 second clip. Hey, if you're looking for the King's table, go to our YouTube channel and, and that's where we are. So what do you guys think about that idea? I mean, I mean, some people would say, no, you want to be on as many things as possible because some people have their thing that they love. Like some people only want to do iTunes or whatever, but, but what do you guys think about my, my plan or my idea with that? Well, I, I hate to always agree with you, Mooch, but I feel like the video podcast format is really what's, what's the most engaging format. So even you look at Joe Rogan, you watch the all in, I never listen to those podcasts and just listen. Like I really want to watch, even if I'm driving, I find a way to watch the video because the engagement and the interaction is part of the conversation. And I think that that part is just missing in podcasts. I'm sure that there are certain people that just want to listen to the audio on podcast platforms, but I think YouTube is a great place to start. It's a great place to engage with the audience, listen to them, talk with them, to them, let people comment to back back and forth to each other. So um, I think YouTube is a good singular place to get going. Uh, we can always copy and paste it into podcasts later, but you know, does that dilute our focus, even our focus on where we're spending time and energy? So yeah, yeah. I, I have no objections to that. Mikey. I disagree. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I listen. So the, I don't have stats on this, but there's a ton of people that don't have YouTube premium. Um, I listen there's certain, so the all in pod is one of them. I go to YouTube and I play the all in pod just because if I can see it, I'd like to, but it's a long, oh. you know, it's a long podcast. And there's a lot of people out there that if you don't have YouTube premium and you close your phone or you want to be doing, doing something else, like it shuts down. And I just think that I am an audio listener. I don't have YouTube premium. I can make it I not shut down. How do I do that? What do I need to, how much do I need to pay an extra $10 or something? I don't, it I shuts don't down that. on me if I don't like keep clicking it and I still do it. Anyway. Yeah. 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 You just need to go get premium and then it'll like, you can like make it like minimize completely off the screen and, and you uh. can keep listening to it. And then, and here's what, you know, when you first propose this, like, I don't, I'm not like completely against it. And I agree that we should put the majority of, you know, our emphasis into YouTube, but also I think we're just going to miss out on a huge audience that will not, um, they, they just won't listen to it because it's on YouTube and, and it's outside of their um, realm of current listening. And I think YouTube is the future. And I think if we had That's to pick fair. one platform, um, that would be the one to pick. So I don't disagree with the fact that, you know, we should put most of our emphasis there, but I do think that we're going to miss out on a large, large um, demographic of audience that is just audio listeners. They're on the podcast platforms. Um, if we were forced to just do one or we, you know, we're limited on money or, you know, the 
all of us are like, hey, we're going to produce this ourselves and we can only go on one platform. Like I would totally agree with you guys, but it doesn't take any more work to create the video podcast first and then play it elsewhere. Um, and then those people that want to be active on YouTube, I guess the only other side of it, and I, I thought about this for the entire week since Aaron brought this up. And if we want to force people onto YouTube, we can try that. But I just think we're going to lose a large you know, percentage of audience that um, you know what would be interesting, Aaron, is to pull like um, GoBundance or to pull Vistage, you know, and and just think because the busy the busy entrepreneurs that are actually like running businesses and all of that, like we're not just sitting around watching YouTube all day. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in my office even doing deep work. I have a TV right off to my left that, like, if I turn it on, the primary page is YouTube, and I would love to turn on the all in or Cody Sanchez or anybody else and have that playing in the background. But the reality is I just never do it. And so I, I just think we're going to miss out on a large audience that, um, we probably shouldn't. I would agree with you that you may miss out on listeners, but your the engagement in the podcast is so inferior the way that, right? Like if I don't leave the podcast and text you, Mikey, I can't, you can't know whether I like that episode, whether I, I like that one better than that one, or I had a question on that one that you, I need you to respond to. So, I mean, maybe we should start our own platform for podcast hosting where people can actually engage. Oh, you could them. actually quite, you could actually add your comment and your likes live on the, the podcast. Did on we the just come up with an idea. Oh, I mean, it's a gazillion dollar idea against some behemoths. Are we going to compete with Apple? Really? You think I can get Joe Rogan to come over to our new podcast platform? Because that would. Let's start with him as our first client. Yeah. If you get Joe Rogan as your first client, I love you guys. And I love us and the way that we do this as we like, we love experimenting and like going through businesses and ideas and new things. I don't know if you guys listened to all in pod last week, but it was funny by the middle of it. He's like, um, should we buy WeWork together? Let's buy yeah. WeWork. Let's do it. And he's like ready to get off the phone, so off the call, so he can start seeing how much he can buy WeWork for. Um, and so, yeah, so Mike, your point is it's valid and it's one of the things I'm considering and thinking about with it. So the I get way, way more downloads on iTunes than I get on YouTube. I get way, way more downloads on the other stuff I do on YouTube. That's partially where I started. And I, I just have this feeling or this thought that, yes, we would be forcing some people to switch over and try a new platform. But I think we would do it because I think they would love it. And I do, but I do know that there would be some people we would miss. Man, I'm going to sign up for YouTube premium now. I didn't know what I was missing out on. If for 10 or 20 bucks, I could not have to, I could be able to close my phone and have it still be playing. That's amazing. So yeah, I think it's just this idea of it's the future. And when we think about, you know, my, my YouTube page never blows up as much as it could because the podcast is easier, quicker and does all the things. But if it was the only place and people really wanted to go find us there and then these cool conversations came out of it. Um, yeah, I think if we open it up, like, like we do our other pods, which there's pros and cons to that. Maybe we'll have to wait for Maddie for a vote before next week. It'll probably be a lot like my Rockstars pod where most people are on iTunes. Some people are on Android and then 5% of them. I mean, I think I probably get three to 5% of my listeners watch us on YouTube, but we have this unique new thing too, where there's just more interaction. So anyway, good, good conversation to start us off with, but we, we do know there will be a new home next week. Right. And that's, yeah. that means we're going to, we got some work to do 
over the next little while. And then, and I think we're all going to do little ads on our own podcast to tell people where to find it. I think we just got some insight into Aaron's like management style. Hey, listen, team, starting next week, we're doing this. Get your shit together. Yeah. Cause it's wake up. Yeah. Who's listening? Yeah. Tim and AJ are like, I'm out. I'm going on vacation. Yeah. Yep. That's happening. Okay. We just made the announcement. I'm going to be at Vegas F1, just counting on you guys to launch it somewhere. All right. I gave you yeah. my two cents. The other thing is like, we don't know what this could become. We don't know what the future of this really could be. We're having fun. We're enjoying it. We know enough that it needs to probably have its own channel. I've been preparing psychologically our team here on what this what this is becoming. So, all right, well, let's get into some other economic discussions. I want to talk about real estate. I want to talk about opportunities today. So I, I'm going to kind of loft off a bunch of different things that I've been observing the last week or two. Maybe we kind of go around the table and see where you guys think it's ha- what's happening. You know, Mooch, you just mentioned too, there was a, um, they're giving out grants for people to convert office to multifamily. Uh, I mentioned this last week on the phone, you know, I'm on the phone calling deals right now, calling owners, calling brokers, calling banks, you know, things are still really slow. Things are really tight. Prices are, are still, I think overinflated. I was studying, municipal bonds recently and I don't know much about municipal bonds but just quick stats here really quick is like California municipal bonds are trading tax adjusted 7 to 8% highest than they've ever been since 2008 and uh fed bonds are about 6 6.05% tax adjusted for the 10 year okay unemployment is at 3.9% for all of us, we added 150,000 jobs in October. And when you look at like, I got this report from uh, an accounting firm, basically the accounting jobs in the US are less than 2% vacant. So the job market is super hot. People are making money. People are continuing to spend. We talk a little bit about housing. I think Biden passed a big law last week to start pushing people into getting back into the office, trying to renovate or, or develop office buildings. So I just, I think there's some like weird under rumblings, right? We work just went bankrupt today or yesterday. I think they went bankrupt. Maybe we'll have to go put in a bid for, for that. I've been looking at yeah. small businesses. We, I talked about this last week as well is um, service businesses, small businesses all across the country. People are trying to consolidate. Um, Mike and I had a conversation about this offline um, for service business we're looking at. So there's just a really fun, like time, uh, foundational shifting time. So I'd love to kind of, I know it's an open-ended question, but what are you guys seeing? Where are you feeling that there's opportunities in, in these things? If bonds are trading at seven or 8%, what are the expected returns in different categories that you should be looking at? When do you think you know, I think a lot of people are making bets also on when, and I know we don't know this, but people are, even Maddie was mentioning this on Instagram is you're making bets on deals and doing deals based on when the interest rates are starting to adjust. So open-ended question. Um, who wants to go first? What are you guys seeing? Lead us off, Sage. You know, what's interesting about all of this we're either in for like some real scary stuff 
or it's going to be more of more of what has been. And I just I just got my hands. I pre-ordered Morgan Housel's new book, um, Same as Ever. Oh, yeah, I'm excited and about I'm, that. I'm really excited to read it. By the way, I inter- Karen and I interviewed him last year on on my podcast, which was really intriguing. He wrote the Psychology of Money. Yeah, I interviewed him too. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's so so good. But his new book is called Same as Ever, and I'm really excited to dig into it because there's things that just there's things that just don't change. And I, you know, the whole concept of history repeating itself, I do believe that we're in this period of time where there's no history that is showing, you know, what could happen in the next one year, five years, 10 years, um, 20 years necessarily, but there is history that can tell us, you know, some level. And I was just looking this morning, when you look back at, you know, 2008 and, the real estate crash and stimulus. And then you look at the stimulus that's happened over time. And, you know, even it was kind of funny talking about the all in guys in their last episode, you know, even, even guys that are that smart, they started having this conversation around how the government's going to step in. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, no, the it's over. Like everything's done. I, I do believe at the end of the day, we're in this period of time where we've just created so much fake money and there's competing forces around all of this. And I think that's the one thing, you know, I, I just like, I'm, I'm visioning magnets right now and the polarity around it. That's how my brain feels right now. Um, kind of like North and South polarity, because I start thinking about one thing and I'm like, the government's going to step in and bail this out. But then like, I also start thinking, okay, at what point? And Aaron, I'm, I'm curious to jump into, you know, like some of the defaults and what's happening right now and even the WeWork conversation and all of that. And I do believe that there's a bigger undercurrent of wealth transfer that happens in every one of these periods of time. But I also think the system is so fragile right now. Like I literally think we're, we are in a time that the system's more fragile than it's ever been. And so I don't know if it's as simple as, you know, do we, do we print more? Do we not? Um, I mean, even when you look at the 10 year yield versus the one year, um, I kind of feel like the government's lost some level of control on what the long term even is. And so, and I'm not sure that anybody's sure how this whole thing plays out. But I don't know if you look at the last few years and even uh, let's say the last 15 years, I'm pretty sure the government's going to have to step in and do some serious backstopping of all of this. And does that create more inflation? Yeah. I think what the problem is that I'm thinking about is the cycle between bailout and you know the next tranche. We used to talk about how things go in seven-year cycles. I'm thinking the cycles might be tightening. And if the government does step in, do we just create more inflation that's, that's tighter and, and the cycles, instead of being seven years apart or 10 years apart, are now, you know, one to three year cycles. And how long does this carry on? I just don't know how the government doesn't step in at some point in time and, and bail some of this stuff out without us literally driving off a cliff. Sheesh, the, where is that bond? It's a 7% bond where you can get a 7% bond, 8% bond. Seven, seven to 8%. Treasury is adjusting. It, is it a federal bond? Is it a California bond. It's a California municipal bond, 15 year high. 
tax equivalent yields between 78% across short, medium term, and long term dated bond ladders. A 10 year treasury is illustrated yielding a 4.6%, but a 6.05 tax adjusted. All right. So that means the bond is like a 6.5% bond pure. If it's an 8% tax adjusted, 6.5% pure, which is huge. California municipalities backing it. The man, I love California and I'm so sad at how the municipalities just messed it up for me because it was an awesome place to live before they started messing it all up. And so, um, so, but, but anyway, they're going to get their money. Like they're, they will pay their bill into inflation if they have to. So six and a half bond. What does that mean? Yeah. People can put their, like, people are going to be expecting even more. Like cap rates are going to have to go to seven. Is that risk free Mooch? Is that pretty much risk free? Bonds are risk free. Even like in theory, it shouldn't be like, is the city of San Francisco going to file bankruptcy? They should, but they won't for 10 years or they won't <laughs> ever because they can, because the cities are, because California is huge. California is yeah. like, I don't know, like if it stood by itself, it'd be like, you know, in the top 10 economies in the world or something, or used to be maybe in top 20 in the world. And it's probably bigger than I think it's six. 20 countries. Yeah. Yeah. Six in the world. So It'll serve, they'll find a way to pay their debt just like the U.S. will find a way to pay its debt even though it shouldn't be able to. There's no, there's no actual statistical way. So the bond is free money or is, is stress is uh, risk-free money, knock on wood. And so if you can make 6.5% risk-free, then yeah, if you're going to be in real estate or anything else, you need to be making at least 7 or 8% on your money. And so why would someone even buy a 7-cap real estate right now? It's if they believe there's a big upside. But right now where it's still a little scary, I think it's even harder uh, to get people to come in and do some of that stuff to be able to come in. I think um, I want to talk to you guys about a couple deals, but I think one reason we won't see a bailout this time is because most of the people getting bailed out are super wealthy, rich people. Yeah. They do a commercial office bailout. It's bailing out Blackstone. It's bailing out insurance companies. It's bailing out me. It's bailing out people that like the average voter doesn't give a shit about. Now, there's a lot of pension money inside it. So if they wanted to do a bailout and spin it, they could say, you know, 50% of the teachers unions pensions are in commercial real estate assets. And so now we need to do a bailout. That could happen. Um, they, that could happen. There was a lot of that though in 09 and they didn't really, they didn't bail out the pension funds. Like they did bail out some banks, but they didn't bank, but they didn't bail out any of the investment funds. And so maybe they should have. So I would say, I think there's like 80% chance, no bailout because politically people don't think stuff flows downhill. Whereas a bailout of all those rich, wealthy people would actually help the average person pay their bills. Because I'll start spending more money and that whoever I give it to is going to start spending. Like I think money does flow downhill. And when we lose money at the top it do, and that's why it stops inflation. So I don't think there's going to be, be a bailout for that reason. I also think that they're seeing this is exactly what they were hoping and is exactly what happened in the, in the early eighties. I've told you before, my buddy Arnold, great mentor of mine. He talked about in the early eighties, the fed crushed all of the investors out there, but saved the world you know, saved the world of this crazy inflation, but it penalized one class of people and it was wealthy, risky real estate investors. 
I went to auction yesterday and the, there's this property that has a $35 million loan on it. 327,000 square foot building in Dallas, but that's how big the loan was. So it's a $50 million property. It had a $37 million loan on it and it sold yesterday. And you guys, I mean, you already know the answer because you saw my deal. You probably saw my Instagram. How many square feet? Here it is. This deal right here, 377,000 square feet. I'm going to have to get out my calculator. This is going to be really good. Sold yeah. for $14 million yesterday on the courthouse Crazy, steps. Man. So $50 million building sold for $14 million. $37 million in debt that the bank itself essentially wrote down 65% of the, the debt to do that. And so if we take $14 million, 37 bucks a foot. 37, this sold for $37 a foot. This building, this massive, look at that monument that you could have bought for $37 a foot yesterday. <clears throat> Amazing, right? So, and, and we're just going to see more, like we're seeing more and more. That and it's leased. Yeah, it's, it's not vacant. It's, it's not fully leased, but it's not vacant, right? And so, um, and so those who did see it on YouTube, I just shared the pictures with our buddies here. Um, so, man, it's just, and I go, so what does that do to everybody else in the neighborhood? That is now a comp. That is now a comp for future appraisers. That is now a, um, and it lines up too with what a lot of the guys were saying. So like the stuff that's trading in San Francisco right now is trading like two or 300 bucks a foot. And the replacement cost is 1200. When Blackstone came in and aggressively in 2012 and started buying all those foreclosures, all the real single family ones, their promise, if you read the book um, that was written by the guy that owned Blackstone, um, oh, I can't think of his name right now. So his book, he talked about what his whole principle was. He first bought like a multifamily property and his whole thinking was like, oh, I can get this thing for 200 bucks a foot when it would cost me 800 bucks a foot to build it. Let's just buy that. And then they sold it at like three or 400 bucks a foot. And he said, how much stuff can I get for less than replacement costs? And so right I mean, now is stuff is, is that a strategy mooch? Is that a decent strategy? I right think now. with single family, it was a decent strategy, but nobody's jumping in yet on office for that strategy. So the, so I think that strategy has to be a pivot in the sense that you have to convert office to something else. And if you're going to convert office to something else, then is it cheap enough? So if you're buying something for 37 a foot and maybe you can modify it for 200 bucks a foot, then you're getting some value. So I think I mean, very smart people. That was their strategy. And that was a strategy in 2012 that I could not have predicted was going to work out so well for those guys. But I, I think it's bad. But I think that most people are going to be hurt. We're going to be big, big companies. And I don't think there's going to be a bailout. But uh, So I, I also think that we have to be careful generalizing. Um, you guys familiar with Buckminster Fuller? I've heard, no. the, I've heard the name for sure. I mean, he, he was... Like an Adam. He came up with the geodesic dome. He was an economist, just one of the greatest thinkers. He was, he was a mentor to, you know, I think Tony Robbins early on Robert Kiyosaki, but anyway, Buckminster Fuller said like in 1970s or eighties, he was in some city and he was pointing to the, to the tall office buildings. And he said, there's a day coming when all of these are going to be empty. I, I don't disagree with you on the office space. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't create faults in the system that continue 
you know, I think one of the challenges is like, why would anybody buy these buildings? And, you know, the one that you pointed out yesterday maybe makes sense. It's partially occupied, maybe somebody that bought it. It's in a market still that's going to perform well over time. Maybe they need office space themselves for whatever reason. But I think generally speaking, I think the office industry is in trouble. And even the idea, you know, I have a construction background. I did some high rises, not 50 stories, but five, 10, 12 stories. Um, The idea of converting most office towers to anything else, it's pretty crazy at the end of the day. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think... I think we also have to just, it, the whole system is so fragmented. I don't disagree with you on what you're saying in office. And I think there's some serious problems with that. If you look at even Austin, I remember Aaron, I've only lived here for two years, but I remember coming to Austin, you know, in, in the mid teens and late teens and man, this place was bustling and you go downtown now. And I mean, it's not, it's not half of what it was then even though it's more busy than it was in, you know, 2021, 2022. But I just don't know that most downtowns are, are coming back anyway. And so I think the one thing, I guess the reason why I'm saying all of that is like, um, I think we just have to be careful too, or, or just have a conversation around, you know, office buildings. Yes. Multifamily. I get the challenges there. Um, where are the bailouts going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. If you look at, I was just looking at, it's interesting you were talking about this. There's an insider article that was talking about, I think it was CalPERS, maybe it was Caltrans. They just wrote down, oh, it's, it's uh, the California State Teachers Retirement System, CalSTARS. They wrote down 52 billion in real estate holdings, just the California teacher's pension, 52 wow, billion. Wow. And a lot of this is, it's interesting too, what you said about bonds. And I want to circle back to that because if bonds are a safe bet in California, then bonds are a safe bet for the state of Texas Anywhere. for sure. And bonds are a safe bet for the U S government long-term. And so I don't know that it's really that hard, especially if it goes long enough, if a bailout happens, there has to be a lot more pain than what we're currently experiencing. I don't think it's going to happen without some serious pain happening. But at the end of the day, did you guys see that over $4 billion has been given to LGBTQ, whatever? And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but in the last 12 months, $4 billion has been given in grants by the United States government. That's a lot of money. Money's just being handed out left and right. And so the idea that that, that the government actually cares what we think about where money's being given I don't know that that's a valid argument today because half the time, I'm not saying that I think government's just going to step in and bail out the rich, but I do think that what you said, Aaron, everything is so intertwined now that I don't know that people are really going to throw a fit when it starts impacting their pocketbooks, um, when their employers are laying off. I mean, there's so many people that are employed, even just in the office space buildings. Think about the janitors, think about the people that support that. Think about the HVAC techs. Think about the maintenance people that, you know, if, if we don't step in and, and help all of this, it's going to trickle down really, really fast to the everyday person's pocketbook, not just Blackstone. What I'm seeing, Mike, and you, you hit the spot on is like the distress is not necessarily coming from a lack of occupancy, like widespread maybe market occupancies are 20, 30% vacant, 
but some buildings are zero. Some buildings are 20. Some buildings are 15, like uh, occupied, right? So they're empty. But I think, I think that the pressure that I'm seeing, and, and just transactionally speaking, is that the numbers don't work when your adjusted rate mortgage goes from 4% to 9 or 4% to 8 right? So now you got to get out. And so why would the government come and bail, bail out those people? So there, there will be transactions in sparsely that either go bankrupt or have to go on fire sales to, to get rid of. But Mooch, I'd love to turn this back to you. A few months ago, a few weeks ago, we talked about it in regards to your clients or your or the people that you're you're seeing you know they take they take all the steps to the very last minute right before they have to go to foreclosure so what are you seeing sort of on the ground because i think the government's not going to bail out large corporations unless they see that it's going to hit main street unless people are going to lose their jobs lose their homes not be able to pay their bills and then we're going to have uprising to the point where government has to get involved if a handful of bit, really rich people lose their properties, no one gives a shit. But if people are kicking, you know, they can't pay their mortgage and you're having 20, 30% unemployment or 10% unemployment, then you got real systematic problems. So what are you seeing from that perspective? Yeah. Um, I think the other side of it too. So yes, it will trickle down, right? Office building gets foreclosed on. Everybody in that building is now, you know, out of a job or whatever. Right. But the problem with the trickle down in this context, at least, is it'll happen after the wreckage happens on the commercial level. So, like, the government's not going to say, like, oh, we need to stop these commercial foreclosures. They're not smart enough to go, we need to stop these commercial foreclosures because it's going to end up 100 people are going to lose their jobs on every, on every building that's foreclosed on. They're going to wait until people have lost their jobs. And by that time, the foreclosures have already happened. So part of me thinks that the damage control and the bailout, by the time Main Street is saying, give us a bailout, it's too late to bail out the commercial industry. Like we, we have to see wreckage and have, and right now everyone's saying it's not going to affect single families, it's not going to affect anything else. It, it will affect other stuff, but I think they won't say save us until it affects other stuff. And I think that's too late. It's like raising rates and then being like, oh, we should have stopped raising rates nine months ago and just let it chill. So that's another part to like what we're seeing on, on main street. We have more foreclosures, single family foreclosures posted in Houston than we've ever had or uh, well, except for back in 2010, 2011, but since 2011 and for a while after COVID, we didn't have that because how much equity people had, it's still a very mm-hmm. small percentage. Like Mike's point last week is like, but they're just like a data point, right? Like are more people in Houston, um, behind on their payments than have been in the last 11 years. Yeah. Still a very small percentage of the people that own houses there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but I tell you what, so one property. So yesterday in Texas, there's probably 150, $130 million worth of foreclosures. Right. But there was be six properties that are going to make up 90% of that. And there was, you know, and there was 50 that sold in several different, and like, so hundreds of properties sold. And six of them made up 90 to 95% of the, the value on main street. Value. We're still seeing our rentals are, our renters are struggling. Um, we're not, we're decreasing rents to keep renters, um, back to back right now. I think the other, the, Mike's other point too, is I jump around a little bit, the, the idea of what will happen with cities. Austin was really, really bustling and they built these beautiful new towers. A lot of them are empty. The tower that I want to buy downtown, right? The, the, the lot that the land that I've been working on and negotiating with and trying to 
stay in the hopper. Um, and I probably shouldn't even say this on the podcast, but the, but it, it's like, you know, at the beginning price that we started at and what they started at and they were very confident with. And I said, best I can do is 20 mil less than that. So I'm out. Thanks for letting me come to the table. And they said, offers are due today. Are you going to submit it? No, I'm 20 mil off. Best I can do. Okay, they're, de- they're due today. Why don't you just send an LOI just to make sure you're allowed to still make an offer later? I, I was, no, that's the point. I'm not going to even send one. And they call me the day after the offer is due, which technically I'm not supposed to be able to submit anything else. And they said, are you still good at that number that you gave us? Yeah, scary. Right? Scary. Scary that there's a 30% discount on something in one of the most premium markets ever. So, so I think that it is hitting Main Street, but I think it's going to take more wreckage at the top for it to hit Main Street the rest of it. It'll affect the way I hire people. It'll affect the way I bonus people. It'll affect the way I spend money. Absolutely. I'm already down a lot in the last year and I'm spent, even though you wouldn't see it by my Instagram, I'm spending less than I would if I uh, was no hold barred on stuff. The WeWork thing is related. And I thought I'd just post a couple things out on that. And I mean, today's definitely been, it's, it's a lot of a real estate podcast, but it's economic. I think it affects so many things, but um, WeWork is they're they're, you know, essentially they're getting to start over on some of their leases and they're just going to people and they're rejecting some leases. They haven't, the, what's interesting is they haven't rejected any of the Austin leases. They've got like, they've got a bunch of square footage in Austin and they did not put the Austin properties on their list, which was a shock to me because of how much vacancy we have here, that they wouldn't go to those Austin properties to renegotiate. Like who wants to buy the office? I do, but I don't want to buy a giant, I don't want to buy that office. I don't want to buy a 327,000. I want to buy an office to office in. Because I do love offices. I do require my workers to work in an office. I think it's more efficient. I, lo- I love it. I think it is important for my job, my business, my level of trust and conspiracy theoriness that I do of if my employees are working or not. Um, and they hate me for it. But, um, but I don't need a giant office. Really, I want to buy the building that I'm in right now, but I don't even need a building this big that's only 20% occupied. So, the, so I think people, I think end users are going to want to buy it for investments. But... And but maybe if you're getting something for thirty cents on the dollar, then it pencils it at a twenty percent vacancy or or twenty percent occupancy rate. I don't know. Well, if you look at I again, I think this is market specific, but like even thinking about WeWork in Austin, I have a membership to Industrious and I've had offices there for two years here. Um, they're opening a fourth location because they're just full. And so if you look at like the WeWork model in Austin, or if you look at the industrious model in Austin, it kind of makes sense because I think, I think companies are scared to invest in office space in cities like Austin um, because of the challenges that exist. And so I don't think this is like a, I don't think this is a blanket problem. I think this is market driven. If you look at Nashville, you know, we were talking about Austin and how lively it was pre-COVID. This is a government this is a government issue, like a local government issue. If you look at Nashville compared to Austin, downtown Nashville is flourishing. Yeah. And they have like similar vibes, like, you know, they're sister cities. And if you look at the way Nashville's being run versus how Austin's being run, it's night and day, like comparisons on, you know, what's happening in the downtowns. Every single restaurant that you go into in Nashville has live music right now. Austin used to be that way. Like yeah. it used to be so lively. 
And the way that the local governments have kind of, you know, done things is a big indicator, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's California in general. Um, Aaron, I can't remember the billionaire's name that said this in 2020 when he was on a GoBundance podcast, but he was talking about, he lives here, but they moved from California. And I can't remember his name, but he was talking about how, you know, this whole idea of globalism, like the United States competing with um, China or different areas, it's going to continue to go on. But he said, we're coming into an age where states, we're not talking about globalism anymore. We're talking about state to state competition. And so I think I think some of that weighs into it. The thing that I want to yeah. circle back to too, and by the way, I don't disagree with anything that like Aaron, I mean, Aaron's obviously a, a, a brilliant you know, person when it comes to real estate and everything else. I just struggle with, even when we talk about bailouts, I think things are changing so quickly in this day and age that when we think about a bailout, like what happened in 2008, you know, this was a crazy transition from, um, was it, it was George Bush to, to Obama, right? And, and Obama got like the credit for all these bailouts that started happening in late 2008. But the reality was he was on the tail end. I mean, he just took over what Bush was already heading toward. So this right. isn't a Democrat, Republican type thing. But when we think about that level of bailout, as you were talking about it, Aaron, I mean, it could be as simple as flipping a switch. How fast did we go from 3% interest rates to 7 8% interest rates? Pretty damn fast. If there's a real problem and a real fracture in the system, it could be as simple as just turning that backwards the other way and eliminating some of that future blood and chaos that's in the streets too. And I'm not saying that that may or may not happen. I'm not that smart. And if we're sitting here having this conversation, you got to imagine that the politicians at the top and the Federal Reserve and the banks and everybody else, I mean, did you see Bank of America had to write down like $148 billion last quarter? Yeah. JP Morgan, like $48 billion? Nobody's talking about this. Like yeah. very few people are talking about this because we're so focused on Israel, commercial, you know, office mortgage problems. And I just wonder if rather than a bailout, that everybody's going to hate. Is it as simple as, I mean, nobody's going to get pissed off. No everyday main street person is going to get pissed off if interest rates go to three or 4%. Does that solve 70% of the carnage in the streets? I, I think it may actually. You said something that was interesting. Look, B Bank of America had huge losses. Those are the losses that we know about. They, unless they mark their assets to market, there are more losses that we don't see. So they're not incentivized to necessarily mark. So like Mooch, we just, we were talking about a deal in San Francisco, right? Or, or all these big um, financial institutions, 401ks have these large, large assets in the, some of the biggest cities in the country. And if those properties are marked to market 30% less on their balance sheets, then their balance sheets become illiquid. So they're not incentivized to, they're just, everyone's holding on for dear life. So, you know, and, and when those banks go bad, this is exactly what happened in 2008, we have a problem. So I think interest rates, it can be a very powerful lever. I don't think, Mike, though, that it'll go down as fast as it went up. I don't think it would. I don't know why, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't. I'm not even saying that it, I'm not even saying that it should. I'm just saying it's a lever that doesn't have bail. 
It doesn't have bailout behind it. I'm just saying like, we're in such a chaotic time that uh, who knows what the hell they're going to do, but. I only think it's such an important lever right now because it really, if you look at all our friends, all our pe- people that are investing, not only in real estate, and bid- but in businesses, that lever is, is actually a really important lever in looking at deals, in making the numbers work, in penciling. Like in our industry, nobody's building anything new. If, if you're trying to build a new hotel, forget about it because you can't get penciled on a new construction loan. Forget about it. It just doesn't make sense anymore. It's cheaper just to buy something under replacement costs, right? Than to develop something. So I think, I think it does, I'm putting more weight on it than maybe you are, but I think it, it is an important, important lever. The other thing I, I want to say or ask is I think the suburban towns are much more busy. They're, they're thriving. People don't want to go back into the cities. That makes sense. Uh, work from home is here to stay. We can make that argument. Um, some cities are doing better than others. Okay. But are cities ever going to really go away? And so if you're, you know, we talk about this on the podcast all the time is what can you do about it? Spending time in the cities that are distressed. Is there an opportunity there? If you have a long-term view, if you're willing to sit in San Francisco and buy things at 20 cents on the dollar and wait for 10 years, is that a smart play? I mean, is San Francisco going to really like stay a zombie land forever? Well, Aaron, Aaron said this earlier. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather put money into a 7% bond for San Francisco than sit on a, than sit on a fricking building that might come back in San Francisco at some point. So I just think the majority of real estate investors have more of a, you know, a cash flow mindset, even the big guys. Um, I don't know that anybody's going to want to sit on this stuff. So I, I don't. It's like buying at a fraction of replacement cost is a great business plan when you know that eventually somebody wants the product. And it is this question of like, let's say we get to the, let's say San Francisco gets to the most amazing economy Mm -hmm. again ever. And people flirt, like, let's say best case is it gets back to like people loving being in California and they're starting businesses there and they're hiring people there. And people say, I am moving to San Francisco for my new job and I'm excited. And the businesses for some reason say, let's have headquarters in San Francisco instead of Texas, even though we've got income tax because it's that much better. Like, will those offices be full again? ever. And I can't picture it. Um, like we said, when COVID first hit, like, Hey, the cities are done and they're not quite done. Like Austin has come back a bit. Like the condos have come back from where they were. Like a lot of the real estate hasn't, you guys are really brilliant guys. I think that like, when you talk about, um, like, yes, what is the simple answer? It is lowering the interest rate back down. Lowering the Fed rate back down would fix a lot of stuff. Joe Lonsdale is the billionaire you're talking about, Mike. Uh, brilliant man. The you know, if you guys go, he's somebody we should figure out how to interview on here. But he's so smart and talks so fast that he'll be way over our heads. I was taking so many notes when when he was getting interviewed by by David Osborne. I was just so impressed. I've got to meet him a couple of times. I'm part of the Austin University of Austin uh, deal that he started. Here. And the whole reason I signed up to be an investor in that was so I could meet Joe Lonsdale, get to ch- get a chat with him. So he's a brilliant, brilliant dude. So here is my concern or thought or just that other side of it. Yes, the simple answer, lower the Fed rate again. But that's the, but like what I said a week or two ago, 
like what I said a week or two ago, is I think that they realize the damage from weaponizing the Fed funds rate. They did it first September 11, 2001. Then they did it after COVID. And now all of the damage that we're seeing now is from Fed fund rate for one. And then for like the money that they gave for, you know, to individuals, like individuals, like when COVID happened, it's a thousand bucks a piece, right? Thousand bucks a piece, 250 million adults in the US. So two and a half trillion, right? Did I get my number right on that? Probably a little bit more than a billion. So yeah, like two and a half trillion is probably what got sent out to individuals when they, after COVID happened, like just sending money to families. And I bet more PPP money went to businesses and more people got like low interest loans and th- than that. So I think, I think most of that stimulus went into the other spot. They, they can do stimulus two different ways. They can lower the, they can lower the rate, but that would increase inflation again. Um, or they could give individuals 500 bucks each every, every three or four months. I think, I don't think that they're, the government's totally against banks going kaput and, you know, essentially rolling up a bunch of banks and having there be one big bank. I mean, a lot of the books that Mike talks about for end of times talks about that. And so I don't think they really care about banks getting screwed and, and, and like going under. I don't think that's, I think when banks are like, oh, now they're illiquid and they can write down their balance sheet. I think the Fed likes that idea and the powers to be. Like that again. Biggest concern is um, our current chair, you know, Jerome Powell. He loves Volcker from the 80s. He used to talk about Volcker like Volcker saved the world. And Volcker was the guy that was the Fed chair in the 80s that raised the rates to like 18% and just held for the longest time. And they, to where I remember my dad went from having a great job and a great business to selling fireplaces door to door for what seemed like years. Um, it went from being a very wealthy, you know, a pretty wealthy family to like, we weren't, I wasn't allowed to drink the milk because that was him for him. For him. So, you know, I don't know. I think there's lots of different, you know, predictions wise. I would love it if rates get lowered again. And if they do, everything goes back to normal pretty quickly and money starts getting printed again. But again, I think the people that benefit the most from that are guys like us. I don't think that, I think it takes too long for main street to feel the benefits or the pain from these actions. I think if they want to benefit Main Street, it'll be like tax credits, easy tax credits, easy tax free, because they could do that in a heartbeat. Why haven't they bailed out, you know, Lahaina, Maui, right now? Yeah. Could easily, could easily, because just like you said, Mike, flip a switch, turn PPP back on, just like they did when 2020 happened, and every one of those business owners could be paying everyone's salaries today, and they haven't done anything for for the people in Lahaina. Um, yeah, man. And that's one where I think everybody in Maui would nobody would argue with that. Everybody like, cool, that whole city burnt down. Now you're paying PPP to keep everybody employed. Cool. Like, so yeah, I think it's, but maybe not enough people care. Nobody well, cares. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not advocating for PPP. I, know, I don't think. No, I know. Dude, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't, I don't think the government, I don't think the government should do anything. Like, I think the government should, I'm like, I'm like with, Vivek a few weeks back, like shut 75% of them down. So I'm not, I'm not arguing for it. I just, but you think it's going to happen. So I think there's such a mental game to all of this. And I think they've been trying from an inflation standpoint, I think they've been trying to slow us down. I think they've been trying to slow down spending. I think they've been doing, trying to do all the things to get inflation down. And I think the average American has just ignored it. 
and hasn't mentally, emotionally felt it. And I have a feeling just the last month, two months, the negativity, the sentiment that's out there on the streets right now, it's starting to really work. I think Americans in general are getting just tired. I think they're getting beat down. I think they're getting wore down. And I imagine if we fast forward one quarter, three or four months, I bet you January or February is going to be a very, very dark um, period of time if things stay the way that they are right now. And so even when we talk about Main Street and the fact that we think that politicians are so driven by what Main Street thinks, I have a feeling that if something doesn't change, Main Street is going to be pulling out the pitchforks in the next three or four months. And I think even just from a psychological, emotional standpoint, I think we're still dealing, I think everyday Americans are still dealing with the repercussions and the ramifications of traumatic mental things that have happened the last three or four years. And I actually think that we're going to come to a culmination in the next three or four months that if something doesn't change, forget about, I I get what you're saying, Aaron, and I agree with you. Like, you know, the fact that office buildings are getting, you know, mortgaged off at a third and and people are losing 50% of their equity and, and big pensions and all that stuff. Nobody cares, but when it really starts impacting us on our own emotional level, which I think it's starting to, and I think Americans are feeling it. You've been saying it on credit cards. You've been saying it on default rates when it comes to vehicles. We've been talking about this and I have a feeling that main street is going to be really up in arms in the next few months. And we're going into an election cycle too. And so I'm not arguing for PPP. I'm not arguing for stimulus. I'm not necessarily saying that, I mean, I would love for interest rates to drop too. Um, but I, I think Main Street's going to be up in arms and I don't think it's just big money that, that's going to be feeling the impacts here in the next few months. I think it's everyday Americans that are finally maybe starting to come to terms with, we're in, we're in some real trouble here. Yeah. You, you talk as she's, then I got a couple awesome things to say. But, uh, I, uh, I feel like I'm just going to make some super conspiracy theorist uh, projections right now, trend-setting projections. I mean, you I don't know if you guys saw this. It's not huge for us per se, but ChatGBT just launched a new ChatGBT um, version where you can now drop 300 pages of something into it to digest, to then regurgitate back to you with any prompt you want. So if you have a huge manual or a research book, or maybe even a 300 page textbook and say, you know, prompt back with that much content, um, it can now process it super efficiently. I just feel like the, you know, AI ChatGPT was pretty much launched to the world a year ago, only a year ago. And three and a hundred million people use that thing every week. Okay. We're not seeing significant unemployment yet. But if we do, just like what happened in COVID, just like what happened in the pandemic, you find reasons to cut. If business is bad, you find reasons to cut. If things are not good, you cut costs and you find a way to be efficient without adding those costs back. And is the government going to try to figure out how to bail out companies or are they just going to figure out, you know what, we just need to have some universal fixed income salary program where 10% of the employment force is always on some fixed low income salary. There 
generally unemployable. And that number goes from 10% to 15% to 20% over periods of time as, you know, Elon Musk was sitting with the prime minister of UK last week. I think there was like some big AI conference in the UK. He's like, AI will take out all jobs, right? Now, obviously, Elon says those kinds of things. Maybe he believes it. Maybe he knows how that can actually happen. But he also knows the virality of that. He's smart enough to know that, right? But if a guy like that, I mean, you have a Tesla, Aaron. Think about the technology just in the Tesla. Just in driving, how how much disruption that technology creates. Now you talk about all, I mean, significant categories of employment, bookkeeping, financial reporting, all of that can be slowly taught, slowly taught to systems and technology where human curiosity or human, human interaction or creativity is just the top 5%, top 2% layer. That's it. Majority of the heavy lifting is done. I'm not I'm not saying that I'm promoting this. I'm just saying that this is could be inevitable. Well, it it is inevitable. And you know, I mentioned this on a on a pod a while back, but I remember having a conversation with uh, uh my my pod in GoBundance pre-COVID. The whole conversation then was modern monetary theory. And I said this again 6 weeks back, but everybody was talking about MMT. And all of us are like, that'll never happen. Like, we'll never, that's what you're talking about, Ashish. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That's what I was really saying too when I talk about, when I was saying that bailouts are not, it's not necessarily what we saw in 2008 when we think of bailouts. If we all of a sudden just put everybody on a fixed universal basic income, UBI, everybody pre-COVID was like, this will never happen. And then COVID happened and everybody was like, give me my money. We went to basically <laughs> universal basic income for a little bit. We did pretty much, right? And, you know, to, to your point, Ashish, like, and Aaron, I agree with you, like Main Street is not going to allow the government to do what they did in 2008 and just bail out the big corporations or the big Blackstones when it comes to real estate. However, if you give everybody $1,500 or $2,000 a month and you lower the interest rate, that really helps multifamily owners that really helps employers. That really helps a lot of people. And it's just, I feel like what's changing in front of us, Ashish, you were talking about technology changing so quickly, but things have changed so quickly in the last few years that again, pre-2020, we were arguing about how MMT will never work and it's not possible. And then it happened. It hasn't been consistent, but I agree with you. That's where we're going. And that is that is a major form of bailout. And guess who's happy at the end of the day? 60% of Americans Everywhere. that, yeah, like. No, the ba- basic income is probably the solution for a lot of different stuff, which means, st- but stuff has to break a lot further to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that one movie where everybody just lives with the VRs on because life sucks and they can't afford to go anywhere else. Oh, yeah. Ready player one. Dude. Yeah, no, Ready Player One is not that unbelievable to me. I went to South Africa and you drive through this area where there are hundreds of thousands of people living in tiny cardboard shacks, one right next to each other. And what the government did there was they gave every one of those shacks free satellite TV. So all these little shacks have little, have like, 
built like shacks built out of cardboard and wood and metal slats, like just stacked on top of each other. Like you got to look up a picture to see it at South Africa. Every one of them has a satellite TV. Cause they're like, look, if we can just get them to sit inside and watch TV, they won't fight and they won't care about the fact that they're living in crazy, crazy slums. Ready player one is just that later, just with the technology well, we have that, now. Just, just with the VR goggle. With, yeah, a little bit more. I think we're going to know a lot about this. I think that um, I've got a quick thing, and I think maybe we, it'll, we can change the subject and close out the pod today. But So we're going to know in two weeks, right? It's Black Friday. We're going to know in two weeks how everybody's feeling. We're going to know how much money they spend for Christmas. Mm. We're going to know where the pinch is because essentially people will spend whatever they can it'll be a real clue on how many bank accounts are actually empty. I, I, I know two or three people recently got cars repoed. Like just got cars repoed. Just couldn't pay the bill anymore. They need the car. They need the car to go to work, but they got repoed because they can't make the payment. So the, I think we're going to know in three weeks how bad it is. Um, really interesting thing. So New York Times, who is predominantly a Democrat leaning newspaper, this week says Trump leads Biden in ne nearly every swing state. If election happened today, Trump would win. Now, everybody knows, like, I love Trump. I love Vivek. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Republican. I'm sorry. Don't cancel me. Uh, maybe we have some Democrats on the pod, too. That, so don't leave. You don't know who Mike's voting for. You just know who I'm voting for. But, right. um, yeah. But the, so I have two little random thoughts about that. Why would the Times put that, even if it's true? Because they've never been known to put anything true. And I think what they're trying to do is get Biden out of the race. So I think the Times is ready to back Newsom, who I think I, I remember I said like a week or two ago. I think shadow campaign. Yeah. That like I said, for, I said, I think there's a very high, high likelihood Newsom is going to be who our candidate is. And I think the New York Times is trying to get that to start now by trying to say, hey, look, Biden can't win against Trump. Let's replace him now. Um, now, any other thoughts of like, one, is it part of this like Main Street is starting to get fed up? Like people are starting to get tired. People are starting to, to like dislike Biden enough that Trump, that, because tr the other thing the article says, Trump's approval rating isn't any higher than it was ever, right? It's not that people like Trump more. It's just they've liked Biden so much less. Now they would elect Trump instead. So that could be a sign of one, it's hitting Main Street more. People are starting to get sick and tired and sick and tired. So that could be part of like backing up Mike's theory on that or thought on that, which I don't disagree with. And then, and, or two is the times just influencing elections saying, Hey, they, they don't like Biden anymore. They want, they, they want Newsom. They want, they want somebody to come in and they're trying to get Biden to bow out. I, I think it's both. I think you're right on both. I think it's Newsom. I also think, did you guys see the, um, DeSantis's top donor is considering pulling his funding and moving it to Trump? What's, no. what's really interesting about all of that, and Aaron, I, I think you're right on both fronts. I think you're right on Newsom. I, I don't know how, I don't know how Biden could, I don't, I don't know how he could win again, but, but also like Trump. I mean, I, again, I don't, I don't want to piss everybody off, but like, can, can we really, can we really elect a president like that again? Um, and I think he did great things. But it's just so much chaos. We're just asking for more of the same. And I think, and I'm, I'll just throw this back with this. I think Americans are really beginning to understand that 80 to 85% of us agree on a lot more than, mm. than what 
we've been led to believe the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, I think that 80 to 85% of Americans actually probably agree on the majority of the most important issues. I'm not talking about abortion. I'm not talking about, you know, home. I'm not talking about the extreme far issues. I'm talking about everyday things that actually impact Main Street. I think most of us agree. When was the last time you sat in a room and actually argued with, I don't get into arguments with, with, with most people even, and, and maybe it's because we're in an echo chamber a lot of times, but honestly, like most of us agree on most things. And I think the average American is starting to understand that we agree on and we care about, and we're in the same boat on a lot more things than what crazy Biden and crazy Trump would want us to think. I, I feel like I don't know enough about <clears throat> the political strategy of how all this stuff. And I know we've professed about it here on the pod, having Vivek here and we're, we're having fun talking about all this stuff, but I just feel like we're at a place where we get what we freaking deserve, man. We're going to get what we deserve. If we don't start stepping up, having coming to Jesus here, coming to some truth here about what we really want for the future of our country, because we are going to get, we're just going to get more chaos, probably more than the last term. And policies aside, there are other people that can execute policy also. But just the the circus of it is like, that. if that's what we want, that's what we're going to get. So how is Nikki Haley almost to DeSantis's poll level? And I guess doesn't well, matter. That's, says, that's a good sign too, right? It I mean, says she, like, she's electable. Yeah, it says Trump still has a 56% rating out of, you know, for Republican candidates. Beginning of the year, it was 45. So he went from 45 to 56. So Trump's approval rating is going up every month as far as the poll rating of if he becomes the Republican nominee. DeSantis was at 35 to Trump's 45 at the beginning of the year. So pretty close, right? Trump was at 45, DeSantis at 35. Now DeSantis is at 13. Like what, what went so wrong for him other than being second place too early? And like, how is like, yeah, now Nikki Haley, who was, uh, who was at the beginning of the year was a 1%, um, is now 9% to DeSantis 13. It's just going to be really interesting. And then, um, you know, it doesn't happen very often on the Democrat. I think part, partially New York Times will jump in now because it doesn't happen very often where a sitting president isn't automatically the nominee. Because like, it's kind of rude to run against him. It's rude, it's rude to step up. Like when Republicans had Republican presidents, we didn't go back through the nominee process for time around two. It just gave us an extra year to root on our guy. And we would let the Democrats fight over each other. And doesn't he lose a lot of power? If that happens now too, like if they say that by January or February, like he becomes lame for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the exact, like, yes, you don't want to, as, as soon as you know, you're getting replaced, you got that last year. Yeah. Like, no, no one's going to agree with you. Everyone's going to veto everything you want to try to accomplish. Like we'll just wait for the next guy. That's the lamest I, part about politics. Anyway, you get a four, you get somebody, the president gets elected for four years. And if you don't have the, on either side, I don't care. And if you don't have the backing of the House and the Senate, nothing happens. And then if you ever do get a chance to do it, you've got two years max. Like, what was it? Maybe the second. I don't remember if any part of Trump's he had the House and the Senate and Trump. I know that like Bush's second second campaign after September, he I think he had a two-year period where he had them all. I don't remember if, if uh, I also think Obama had them all. 
at one point. Um, so you get like two years to get stuff done Love and it. two years of fighting. It's just ludicrous. It's frustrating, but it is the, what, what's easy about the issue that you bring up Ashish is that if they decide to go that route, it doesn't have to be like a lame duck one year presidency because he's basically incoherent. And <laughs> I mean, you could, he could die and nobody would question whether he died or like naturally why or he died. Yeah. Why he died. I mean, he could fall down airline steps and they, it doesn't have to go that route. So I think if they're really positioning for something like that, um, it could happen. You know, I'm going to just say this, and and I think this goes back to the centrist, more of us being centrist than what I think most of us would be um, or have thought. I think this goes one of two ways. I think we either like face the writing on the wall and and deal with what's coming to us, as you kind of said, Ashish, like we deserve. This has been going on for a long time. Um, everything that we're talking about has been going on for a long time, and it either... We either get to a point where, you know, we decide to deal with this and that's very, very challenging. We meaning the entire country and govern uh, the entire world, really. By the way, I think I said this a while back, but the, our central bank, the Federal Reserve, is actually in a better position than the majority of central banks. When you look at the debt to GDP of most central banks, we're not even anywhere near the European Central Bank or Japan's. So like everybody kind of focuses on us, but we're not even in the worst position of all the central banks. We're kind of in it together. Anyway, to make this comment as simple as possible, we're either going to deal with the pain and the death and destruction of the financial system, or we're going to continue to do what we've been doing and, and keep riding this easy money train as long as we possibly can. And I just don't know that anybody wants to deal with the negative side of this. And so... I'm not saying it's going to be easy times ahead, but I, I think all of the things that we don't want to see are, are going to come to play because I don't think that any president, I don't think that any Senate, I don't think that any House of Representatives, I don't think that any governor really wants to deal with what has to be dealt with. And so I think we're just going to keep on pushing the era of free money until the system breaks on its own. All the money's made in the dirt. All good. It'll probably have to get way. I mean, this may be the most amazing time ever because we may see these giant commercial foreclosures that will create havoc on the street, and it and it and they have to get foreclosed on first before the damage happens, and it's too late to fix it and too late to do the bailout, and then you actually see some change, and that's probably. Isn't it sad to think of like, you know, the happiest thing that could happen is just pure like chaos, chaos in the streets because then you can keep it going well. Mm -hmm. Guys, I think we probably need to close out this show for listeners that sat through for. I mean, I want to channel my inner Maddie because in honor Do of it. him not being here, I mean, all this, all this negative angst, all these predictions we're talking about. I mean, look, I think the bottom line is if, if you're an entrepreneur, you're listening to this. If you're a go-getter, man, this is the time. This is the time where you lean in, you learn, you stand tall, be patient build relationships, learn new skills. Just don't keep doing the same old crap because that's probably going to end not good, right? There's definitely significantly, there's just big trends that are changing and plates are moving. So don't just assume that you're going to walk away from this completely clean. 
and unscarred. Um, but I, I'm really excited. I mean, I've shared that here. I'm really excited. I'm like, I'm in a really good season. I feel like I'm ready, man. I'm ready for whatever, not to say that I'm wishing everything falls apart, but I'm ready, man. I'm ready for wherever that opportunity is or start to, starting to position more and more. I also want to say that it's important to go back to basics. It's important to go back to one-on-one skills. You know, Mooch, I was talking to you about somebody I'm reading a lot about right now. Like going back to getting teachers, reading more books, going back to like the one-on-one steps, focusing on customer journey, focusing on customer service, value proposition in whatever businesses or, or even as, a, as an employee, what are you doing to really focus on the one-on-one things that are providing the maximum amount of value? So, um, but I'm pumped. It's a good season. We're still alive. That's what's the most important thing. At least we wake up every single day. We get to do fun shit like this. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Mooch, Mike, any last thoughts before I wrap up? If you're paying more than 20 cents on the dollar for office space today, you're overpaying. <laughs> the V. Which is shot, which we just discovered that yesterday. So you're not getting a deal. If you're getting 30% off on an office, you're not getting a deal. That's scary. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And again, I think this episode is going to be launching on the Real Estate Rockstars, Aaron Muchastegui's podcast this week. But please continue to leave us comments, follow us on all our podcasts. Mike, good to see you, brother. Mooch, always good to see you. Uh, See you next time. Thanks, guys. Later. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.